being a comedian, everything becomes a joke. If you're looking for the story, you're looking for the punchline of every scenario in life. And with something like this, it's so unbelievable that your comedic brain is trying to find the funny from the tragedy because that's the only way you can process it. But in hindsight, I think now I would probably have not gone back to work as quickly as I did. I would have allowed myself to grieve longer than I did and I would have sought help earlier than I did. Welcome to the Big Careers Small Children podcast. I'm Verena Hefti and I believe absolutely no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For far too long, amazing people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children. And this can lead to gender inequality at the top and the same stale, mostly male, middle-class people leading our organizations and our world. I want us all together to change this. And in fact, I hope that many of you listening to this podcast will progress to the most senior leadership roles possible, where you make decisions that make our world better. Beyond the podcast, I'm also the CEO and founder of the award-winning social enterprise Leaders Plus. If you want support from amazing like-minded peers, if you want to join our free events, we've got one coming up about returning to work in January, or if you want to find out about our world-class career development program and our fellowship programs for parents, then sign up to our monthly newsletter on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter. My guest today is the critically acclaimed comedian Lou Conwell. Her baby Emma died because she had to terminate the pregnancy for medical reasons. She shares her story of becoming mother really openly in the hope of supporting others going through that or inspiring you all small people who are going through loss in a really good way. She shares about how she dealt with that loss, how she dealt with the need to keep earning money through being funny and also about the type of support she was hoping to get from friends and her bosses and what support she actually got. We will be talking about the death of a baby in this episode. So if this is something that is affecting you and you'd like support, a really good place to go is www.tomi.org. And if you are experiencing some of the mental health challenges that Lou is describing, it's a really good idea to talk to your GP as, as much as that's possible. On to the conversation. My name is Lou Conran. I am a stand-up comedian and writer. And the significant people in my life are my partner, called Eddie, and my family, who have literally just two weeks ago moved down the road. So I've tried all my life to escape them, and now they are literally across the road. Happy days, amazing. she said. <laughs> yes. But I'm saying amazing as someone whose family lives in Switzerland so I oh, gosh the reality yeah. the reality of living that close might be, might yeah. be different from yeah outside, yeah the- my sister lives in Brazil so I have like from one extreme to the other now my parents live down the road and my sister lives across the other side of the world so it's yeah I know what that feels like to be distanced from your family so we ask this of every guest and I wanted to ask it of you as well what did you used to assume about how to combine a big career with your children that you don't believe anymore? Well, I I was never sure whether I was ever going to have children, really. I always wanted them, but it was just trying to get somebody or convince somebody to actually be with me long enough to impregnate me. 
So I think I used to always assume that it would be like the 2.4 family unit where I'd, you know, I'd have to take time off work and then, I don't know, it's that sort of stereotypical thing, I guess. But yeah, now I don't believe that at all. <laughs> so everything's upside down and everything's changed, which I think is a good thing, really. And you are talking very honestly about losing your baby Emma. That's a very brave choice. What what made you take the decision to talk openly about it? I think because because I'm a comedian, because we're self employed, you don't always you know you there's you don't get sick pay, you don't have a pension, you don't have anything. At the time I made the decision. All oh, right, well I'm going to have a baby, so I'm going to have to take time off work. And then losing the baby, I realised that actually it wasn't until I lost the baby that friends of mine sort of told me that they had been in a similar situation. And I'd never have known. I'd never have known that some of my best friends had experienced that. And so given that doing comedy, you have the platform to be able to actually talk about it and open that door, then I just kind of thought that, yeah, it was a good thing to do. And also because I didn't have a, my partner after everything had sort of buggered off. And so it was just me having to deal with it all. So I wanted, I wanted him indirectly to kind of experience and know what it was that I had been through. So it was more <laughs> a conversation for him to try and listen to, even though he buried his head in the sand. And to everybody else in a, you know, in my situation that hasn't been able to talk about it. So given the platform that I've got, that was the best, best thing to do at the time. And it was quite cathartic, I guess. It was kind of therapy for me, I suppose. Interesting. And did you expect it to be, when you first started talking about it, did you expect it to be having a positive effects, not just on the people around you, but actually on you as well? I don't know what I, I think when you go through something like that, you don't really know how you're going to feel on an hourly basis, let alone a daily basis. So when I started writing about it, it, it really helped. And I guess it's only in hindsight, when you look back on everything that you that you've done about it, like talking about it and then going to the Edinburgh Festival to perform it there and then how big it got. It's kind of, then you suddenly realise the impact it's had. So I don't think you really realise what you're doing at the time. You're just doing what you need to do to kind of survive that situation. So it's, yeah, not until I look back on it that I realised actually, oh, I've done quite a good thing here. You have, uh, you were told at the time, from what I understand, it was out of the blue that your baby wasn't going to live for even a day yeah. outside of the womb yeah can you yeah. share can, can you share what happened yeah yeah so I went to have the five-month scan and they just basically said that she she didn't have any lungs and her internal organs hadn't really developed properly so she had a a condition that they later discovered was osteogenesis something something there's a lot more other words that I can't remember at the end but she had the lethal version which basically meant that she if I went ahead with the full-term pregnancy that she possibly could survive up to a day but she would definitely pass away so then that's the decision that was sort of taken out of my hands to sort of terminate the pregnancy and at the time it was around five and a half months that happened so yeah it's it's madness, isn't it? When you, I didn't, I became pregnant unexpectedly. And then to go through those ups and downs of like, oh gosh, I never thought I would be able to have a baby. Oh no, here I am. I'm pregnant. Oh, I'm pregnant by an idiot. <laughs> so that's, which is helpful. 
And then you get your head around that and then you get told, oh no, this is not going to happen. So it's kind of the, a massive roller coaster of every emotion under the sun. Yeah. So it's quite those five and a half months and beyond were just like every emotion under the sun that I didn't even think that you could experience all in one go, basically. Yeah. So then I had to go into hospital and they, what's the word, induce the pregnancy. And then, yeah, then it was gone and it was. Yeah, a mad time in my life, which we don't talk about. So, yeah, I'm glad that you're asking me these questions. I can imagine it being just completely overwhelming because you're out of control at every at every turn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't get to make your own decision. Well, the thing is, the, your brain goes, well, you have to listen to what the medical people are telling you. And your heart is going... I don't really believe that this is happening, but you have to kind of be led by the professional people. And also your body tells you when there's something wrong. I pretty much knew from the beginning of the pregnancy that there was something not right. I guess it's that mother's instinct or something, but I, I pretty much knew, but I buried it away. So it, it, it was a surprise, but it wasn't a hundred percent a surprise that I had to go through that. Mm. It must be really tough. Obviously, it's inevitable. Your baby wouldn't have to survive. But I imagine with any NHS procedure, you still need to sign that you agree. And it must be so... Yeah, yeah. It, it must be so tough to actually make this the action of putting your signature or taking the first tablet, which is, I think you said, that's how the process starts. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit, because they're so quick to sort of take you into a room, discuss what they think is happening discuss what the process is that they think you're going to go through. But then I had to wait a week before I saw a specialist. So I had that whole week of not really knowing the actual depths of the situation. And then when I eventually got into the hospital to have the process started, you're like, you're bombarded by questions. Do you want a funeral? Do you want this? Do you want, and all you're thinking of is, hang on a minute, let me get my knickers off and let's just start this process. That's you you have to you're bombarded by it but they're just trying to and they're, they're trying to do their jobs while you're trying to process what's happening so it's it was a bit full-on to be honest yeah so it's like almost a surreal experience I think the surreal thing of having a pregnancy and then looking forward to a baby and then the baby not being there there's never a baby you know there's no yeah th there's not th there's no There's nothing physical person. thing that, yeah, yeah. So how, do, do you still keep, I, mean, I presume Emma is still part of your life very much, but yeah. is, do other people respond to you like that or do you have to do something to keep her a valued um, part of, of her life? Well, she's, I have a photograph of, I, they took photographs of her before they took her away, but they have a picture of her little feet that's in my bedroom by the side of the bed. And my partner who, was the father of, of Emma, but he, every time he gives me a birthday card or a Christmas card or whatever, he sends me a Mother's Day card, he always signs it from him and Emma, which for me is just like, he is just the most wonderful man. My family referred, to, well, my mum and dad referred to Emma as well. So she is very much part of the family. That was very important for me to keep her, even though she physically might not be here. I am a mother. I do have a child. She doesn't happen to be on the earth at the moment, but she's, you know, so it's, that acknowledgement for me is very important and for my partner as well. So 
she's she's you know very much part of the family even though she's not physically here which is which is brilliant that, that is brilliant he sounds amazing yeah yeah he is yes he's a hook <laughs> for taking me on that is brilliant looking back now on this really turbulent time is there any advice that you would give your yourself at the time like your current self to your previous self mm. i mean i'm, I'm really like I don't know how someone could go through this. I'm just thinking, like, what, what have you learned about dealing with these extreme, these extreme situations? I think the most important thing is to not deny how you feel, because being a comedian, everything becomes a joke. If you're looking for the story, you're looking for the punchline of every scenario in life. life. And with something like this, it's so unbelievable that your comedic brain is trying to find the funny from the tragedy because that's the only way you can process it. But in hindsight, I think now I would probably have not gone back to work as quickly as I did. I would have allowed myself to grieve longer than I did and I would have sought help earlier than I did. I got I got like uh, counselling from the the hospital. The midwife came and talked to me for about six weeks afterwards but that's that's not enough when you're trying to as particularly with the job I do it's your job to make everybody laugh it's not your job to be full of sorrow so <laughs> it's kind of you're the it's the tears of a clown isn't it really so I think I would have if I was to have a word with myself back then I would just say give myself more time really and to make people aware that I'm working with that I'm going through something horrendous and to be more sensitive most people were sensitive about it. I had a few people that were, I don't know whether I can swear, but there were dicks about it. But but that's people not knowing how to behave in your presence. Mm -hmm. So that's other people have it more. I think other people found it more difficult than I did because they don't know what to say. They don't know how to handle you in the workplace. So it's, it's, it's hard. You're trying to preempt everybody else's feelings before your own. It's so ridiculous I think because you're the one going yeah. through it, isn't it? And you shouldn't yes. have to look after yeah. not, not upsetting yeah. people because yeah, and you're yeah. the one that in the early days, I'd yeah, I'd walk into a room or something, and I could see people I you know people I've known for years on the comedy circuit take a look at me and then start crying or or fumbling for words or just leaving the room even because they don't know what to say to me. And these are people I've known for years. So you being the person have to give the permission to kind of talk about it or to say it's okay. You are allowed to feel what you feel. So, oh God, such a responsibility, I even know, though I, you're the one, but it's your responsibility to make sure everybody else feels okay. But that is so weird. So, so what would be the, sorry, this probably, I'm sure that people will tell me that was a completely inappropriate response, but I just almost no, really reacted to that. But no, there's no, I have to say, there's there's no wrong about the way anybody feels about this. There's no right, there's no wrong. It's just your your instinct of how you react to what I've just said. Absolutely mm. fine. as it, Because, you know, you're a human being and we all feel differently about things. So there's no right and wrong. And if anybody says it's inappropriate, then that's that's their issue. So you right. just, you do you, isn't it? Um, yeah. So, so... So I get your point and I just, I love that it speaks for the type of human that you are, that you are taking an interest in how people feel who are supporting you. But did you get any types 
of words or any areas of support that were amazing and absolutely fantastic. Did I? <laughs> I don't think I did really. Because I think it's such an alien, it's such an alien thing to go through because, oh, woman gets pregnant, woman has to deal with work, woman has to think about how she's going to pay the bills, but woman will have child. <laughs> and then when woman doesn't have child and the pregnancy isn't all hearts and flowers and roses, but nobody knows what to do in that situation. So I didn't really, I didn't really have that brilliant advice. I had to work it out myself, I mm. think. Especially because friends, as I said earlier, that friends of mine who had been through a similar situation and I didn't even know that. Yeah. It's, yeah, I, th I think I kind of took on the responsibility of being the one to actually talk about it, which is crackers, isn't it, really? Nobody knows what to do with the death of a child, so. What do you think stops people from talking about it? Because it's, it is literally that, the death of a child. And this is what we're all sort of, not so much nowadays, but stereotypically back when I was a child, it's like you will, when you get older, you will have a baby, you will marry a wonderful man and you will stay at home and bake cakes for your child and then you'll go and do whatever it is. But I think nobody knows how to deal with it. It's the, it is the, one of the last taboos of child loss is horrendous. Anybody that's lost a child, it's, it changes you as a person. It changes your whole life. And, it's too big a thing for people to comprehend. So I, I got used to the fact that nobody knew what to say to me because I didn't know, I wouldn't have known myself what to say in that situation. So, yeah, it's that taboo, which is why I was trying to get people to talk about it so that it, it isn't this taboo, that it is the thing like, you know, Emma is introduced to conversations in our house all the time. As I said, my partner puts it on cards. So that is just sort of our way of kind of, trying to do our bit to lift the taboo, including Emma in every every part of the family, even though she's not physically here. And by doing that, it sort of makes other people realise, oh, okay, so this is how they feel and this is a thing. You know, you can talk about it. So oh, it's a minefield, isn't it, really? But it's, it sounds like what you're saying is that even if you're likely to say the wrong thing, you as someone who's experienced child death, would prefer someone to say something rather than yeah. it doesn't happen. Oh my goodness, yeah, yeah. Comedy is a very serious business and it's not that funny. You'd think that your comedy mates would all sort of come together and sort of be flippant about the situation but would probably be light-hearted about it. But so I would, and I would expect that from my comedy chums. But at the beginning, some people were like, oh, I wanted to send you presents but so-and-so told me not to because that was inappropriate. But... You know, that's that person's response and they're putting their beliefs onto somebody else. So everybody has their own feelings. Everybody has their own way of dealing with stuff and they should be allowed to do that. And I, I think if it's happened, you know, I'm only speaking for myself here, but I wanted people to talk about it because it's that massive elephant in the room. We all know it's happened. So let's just bloody address it. Because if you don't, I will think less of you if you don't mention it. I find that more disrespectful. Mm. Yeah. I, I think it, it is so good to hear that. So thank you. And I think it, it applies to whatever grief someone is going through, whether it's yeah. a baby, whether it is other grief with other people mm. that are close to you. I think it's so good 
to hear you say that. Thank you. Yeah, I think I think in the work, especially in the workplace, in a corporate world. I've worked in a corporate world as well before. Became a clown, and it's so sterile, isn't it? The the corporate environment is so sterile. I, I mean, I don't know whether that it's any different nowadays because I haven't been doing it for a long time. But I just think you cannot. I don't know how much sick leave you get for baby loss in the workplace now, but I would imagine it's what I don't know, a couple of weeks, a month, or whatever. But you can't, you can't give it a time. You can't give it a label. You you feel what you feel on a daily basis, and it should be organic and it should be an ad hoc way of dealing with it. Is that the right word, ad hoc? No, that's not. Is it? Yeah. So it's, it shouldn't be. Oh right, well in two weeks you'll feel better, so then you come back to the workplace. So you you deal with it in your own way with the people that you want to deal it with. So, yeah, and it should be discussed and you should talk about it because that it helps everybody because everybody's experienced loss in one way, shape or form. I'm on a rant now. Sorry. Mm -hmm. I've had had another coffee. Sorry. Not at all. Obviously, you as a comedian, like you mentioned, you're a freelancer. You're responsible Mm -hmm. for paying your own bills. Mm. If you don't work, nobody pays the bills for you. And who who is your boss? Is that from you to your, yourself? I presume you have a book editor or agent and things. No, like. I I do it all myself. Oh, so wow. it's, yeah. yeah, so yeah. And I went back to work far too quickly afterwards because, as you say, I am the one responsible for my bills. I wasn't with the father of my child, and I that was just a, a kind of a a fling in the wind, if you like. So I wasn't in a, a partnership. It was just me solely having to deal with everything. So I would, I just went back to work too quickly and yeah, that was hard, but that's because I had to. So <laughs> because I don't get sick leave pay, I don't get anything. So yeah. So how did you, so you obviously had to, you had to be funny. Yeah. And the same, I mean, obviously the, our listeners, most of them yeah. don't need to be funny in the workplace, but no. they, they will need to perform in quotation marks in front of clients. If you're mm-hmm. a doctor, they will need to look like they know what they're doing mm. in front of their patients. If yeah. a financial accountant, then yeah. they better look like they've got the numbers together. So yeah. so they all have to somehow function. How did you manage that practically? Um, it, it, is there anything that you learned about working again after the loss of a child? Because it doesn't go away. It's still there. It's no, it, yeah, it doesn't go. I think, yeah, it's, it's a weird one because... Because I don't like the, a lot of people think that comedians drive around in a funny bus and then go to gig to gig to gig. You don't know who you're working with on a nightly basis. You just turn up and you're on the bill with whomever. But what, what I had to remember about that was when I'd turn up to gigs, nine times out of 10 people who I was working with didn't know what I'd been through. And the audience don't know what you've been through. So you, here you are, this kind of vulnerable, bubble of grief and you think that you've got a label on your head everyone knows everyone knows oh blah blah nobody nobody knows nobody gives a shit about you (laughs) unless you flag it up and I can't do that to an audience full of people because they've gone specifically to be for a laugh they might be going through something and they've thought oh gosh well tonight I just need a laugh because grandma's died or I've lost my job or the dog's dead or whatever you don't know what goes on in anybody's individual head. So you just kind of have to put your professional head on and get on with it. You have to, you, you learn to sort of shut it off 
put it away in the filing cabinet of grief and get on with your job, which is really hard when it's your job to make everybody else happy. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I struggled. So as I said, I went, I went back too early. And then when I realized that, I just sort of thought, I'll find a way to pay the bills. I just need to be nice to myself. And then the more you sort of alert other people to what you're going through, then it's up to the promoters and the, the people that book the gigs to sort of be sympathetic to that. So you need people that you work with to sort of be aware of what you're going through so that they can be a bit more fluid with you. Mm. Mm. And I can imagine, obviously, I've never been a communication, but you have people, it sounds like quite cultural to people. Oh, yeah. I you very much. Mm -hmm. they, they heckle you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I, I, that just sounds very, very tough at any day. Yeah. And yeah. when you're going through something like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you don't want to. It is hard because they don't know. As I said, they pay their money. They want to be entertained. They don't know that the woman on stage has, you know, three weeks previously given birth to her dead child. They don't know that. They don't want to know. And so... Yeah, if anybody heckles you or triggers something in your brain, then God help them because <laughs> they're going to get it. That's why I had to sort of step back from it for a couple of weeks because I just thought, oh, I am not mentally capable of dealing with any of this right now. Yeah. You know, I think anyone three weeks after birth would be, and maybe not anyone, I don't want to be judgmental, but a lot of people that I know, including myself, would be tired and possibly quite hormonal oh yeah after birth and then yeah also not only that but the grief the life to yeah grief. yeah so you then sort help you mentioned and is there anything that you learned about seeking the right help where do you, yeah. do you even start that must be such a mindful when you have recognized that yes i know i need help and that's a massive mm. thing yeah i got i got like i think it was about six weeks counseling from the midwife who would come round, make sure I was okay, have a cup of tea, and then she would leave. And that was really sweet. She didn't need to do that, but she did do that. And then it wasn't until about I decided that I would write an Edinburgh show about the loss of the, of, of the baby because I needed to deal with it in my own way. So then I went to Edinburgh, the biggest arts festival in the world, to perform a show about losing my baby, and I performed it every day for a month. And then what I didn't realize was, of course, people would come and watch that show that had been through the same sort of thing, who would then want to come and talk to me afterwards about their experiences. And you can't then open a world of a baby loss and then shut the door because the whole point of you doing what you're doing is to get people talking about it. So then I, I do the show for an hour every day, then people would come and talk to me about it, and then I would go home and then I would have a cry. And then I'd have to go and do other gigs. And then it wasn't until the end of that particular Edinburgh, so we're, we're talking about a year later, that I realised that I had PTSD. And, and it took a long time for me to sort of acknowledge that I was my behaviour had changed. I was reacting irrationally to everything. I was spending so much money on a credit card to try and find a way to make myself happy just to lift me in some way and that wasn't working that wasn't working that wasn't working and then I suddenly I went to New York with a friend of mine but a bloody fortune in Tiffany's I mean glorious got myself a beautiful ring but then I came back and I was on the plane and I felt nothing I'd had a wonderful trip away with my best friend 
I'd had a wonderful time around New York. I'd seen things I'd never seen before. And I was on the plane on the way home and I felt nothing, absolutely nothing. And then I just turned to her and I was like, I think I need to get some help. And then I got a PTSD counsellor who was amazing. And then he was saying, oh, your behaviour, this, this and this and everything he was saying sort of matched up. Potentially, I probably needed that help straight away after the baby. But I kind of think your body and your brain have to go through certain things to get you to the point where you realise you need the help. Does that make sense? So it takes as long as it takes, I think. Everyone's individual and it's all different for everybody. And you probably do need to be, I'm not a mental health expert, but I can imagine you need to be ready for it. Mm, Yeah, 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 yeah. And the people around you, you know, I'd have to forewarn some people at gigs, you know, I'm not going to be coming to the gig tonight because I'm not mentally stable enough to go and make people laugh so I think you have to be honest you have to tell people I'm not ready for this or I can't do it tonight and people have to be understanding they have to be (laughs) yeah if not for that then what I mean surely so so you mentioned you actually told people very bluntly saying I'm not mentally stable enough Mm, mm. is there anything else that you did to manage the people that wanted you to do stuff what did I do yeah, I, I think the comedy circuit is, is, you know, you only have to fart on a Tuesday and the whole comedy circuit knows about it by Friday. So, and then obviously the stories get twisted and turned and everything. And so I, I kind of had to manage everybody's expectations, manage everybody's ideas of what they thought had happened to me by just telling everybody honestly, because I, d- I didn't want information to be wrong. I didn't have a miscarriage. I didn't, this didn't happen, that didn't happen, this is what happened. And you all need to know that that is what happened because I didn't want people to start chatting about my situation and getting details wrong. I was really, really adamant that people needed to know every single detail that was correct just so that people would understand what exactly it was I had been through so that people could sort of treat me, hopefully, with kindness and the respect that I that I needed at the time. So... I think that was just it, really, just being open about it. This is how I feel and this is what's happened. So don't be a dick. It it sounds like that was actually one small thing where you were able to have a bit of control. At least you are in control about what messages get out about the situation because everything else you're not in control of. Yeah, exactly. I know what's happened. This is exactly what's happened. So don't be off whisper. You know, there's lots of things I heard people talking about. Oh, she did this and this happened. It's like, what are you talking about? That did not happen that way. This is what happened. Mm. The end. So stop <laughs> talking about me behind my back. We touched briefly on employers earlier. And I wondered, there are a lot of people listening, online managers. A lot of people listening mm. will be HR leaders. Mm-hmm. Is there any message that you have for them? Yeah. I mean, as I mentioned earlier about the corporate world, it's there, there is no prescriptive way of like oh so for two weeks you'll feel miserable but then next Monday you'll come back and you'll feel fine it doesn't work like that it's it's an organic process grief is grief the loss of a child is horrendous and one day you'll feel fine the next day you won't feel fine people in the workplace talking about taking their kids out for the weekend oh we went to wacky warehouse did you all right lovely I didn't (laughs) so it's kind of, you don't want to tell people to never talk about their children. You don't want to tell people to deny that they are in a family unit or 
to to not be themselves but it's just about being aware that everybody deals with these situations differently and it just to deal with it with kindness and respect because you know the workplace corporate bollocks it's it's not a machine it, people are human beings and that's how they should be treated i think it's a lot better nowadays perhaps i think with there's shifts in everything at the moment isn't there but people still need is it not no is it oh, well, okay it's my, <laughs> i think you're actually in some places absolutely and i know of some really amazing places and they have actually maybe lost policies i know some amazing line managers but sadly we're all humans and there are still places where things happen that are really you know that, what you're describing now i've heard of you're thinking so, oh right so sadly, okay so i think but I think progress is happening and there's some really good examples and yeah. lawyers are following those good examples. Yeah. Also, I have to say, even though the father of my child was an absolute bellend and behaved really badly, m men are very, very much left out of this conversation. And I work in a very male-dominated industry. And when I told, I wrote an article about what had happened because, as I said, I wanted people to know so that they knew how to deal with me. But when I went back to work slowly but surely, a lot of my male comedy companions had sort of said, oh, that happened to me and my wife and I didn't know how to deal with her and I didn't know how to deal with this, blah, blah, blah. So I actually had a lot of my male comics coming up and talking to me about it and I, I thought, oh my God, I didn't even realise that these people would have been through with what they've been through but they've had to kind of, in their words, man up and deal with it when actually they need a voice as well. So mm -hmm. it's... Just because you're a man and your wife's been, or your partner, or who you know, whoever's been through this, doesn't mean that you're exclusively denied the the ability to grieve. And uh, you know, you don't have to be, you don't have to be the man about it. You, you are allowed to feel sad as well. And that's the the biggest thing I discovered actually was that it was mostly men that came and talked to me about it, which I found very interesting because they don't always have a voice. Thanks for saying that, and I think. At home, they will obviously want to support their wife, assuming that yeah. the setup that they have at home. Yeah. And then it becomes extra tough because if, if there isn't institutionalized support for women, there is mm. less so for men yeah. going, going through that. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. So is there anything else that you, if, if someone listening to this is going through really sad bereavement at the moment, be that miscarriage or another form of, of, of a bereavement or having to do with termination or mm -hmm. a stillbirth or anything like that. Is there anything else that you haven't said yet that you would like to say to them? Well, I would just say it takes as long as it takes. You'll have good days, you'll have bad days. You'll think a year later, you'll think, oh, I feel fine. And then something will trigger you in the most unexpected way and and just come up and catch you by surprise and again that is absolutely fine there's no right or wrong way of feeling about grief there's you know oh you should be feeling this by now oh well in 12 weeks you'll feel better no you won't you'll feel it takes as long as it takes that how long ago was it for me it was six years ago for me everything is a lot better in my life now but I still have days where I'm like Oh, look at that. You know, I see my friends with their, with their babies and their children. My best friend was pregnant at the same time as me. Our due dates were the same. 
So, and, and little Leo, her son is amazing. And I look at him and it's really hard for me sometimes because I think, well, Emma would be the same age as him and perhaps Emma and Leo would be pals and perhaps they'd play together. But, but then I look at it and I think, well, he's amazing. And, and he is a really positive thing in my life because I just think, well, I'm so glad that my friend, she struggled with IVF for years and years and she, and she has the, she has Leo, which is amazing. And then some days I get really sad about it and some days I don't. And that's still six years down the line. And there's no, I think you just have to give yourself permission to have no rules. There's permission for no rules. And, but all I would say is that it does get better and it takes as long as it takes. It, it honestly does get better. That's good to hear. And you mentioned about your friendship yeah. there. It's very impressive that you managed to keep going, even though yeah. this must have been super, super tough. Do you yeah. have any reflections about why you managed to hold on to that very valuable relationship in a time that very... Yeah, because she's amazing. <laughs> she's my best friend. She's brilliant. I'm not going to never speak to my best friend ever again because her pregnancy went well and mine didn't. That's, you know, our relationship is built on love. And she had her, as I said, she had her own really tough journey to get pregnant. Her and her wife tried for years yes. to have a baby. And then, and here we are, we've got Leo and he's, he's incredibly special and amazing. And they've, now they've got another daughter as well. Again, beautiful and amazing. And I can't, I'm never not going to speak to my best friend again because she's been to, you know, managed to have a child and I haven't, I can't, that, yeah, I can't ever imagine that. That's, yeah. And because mm -hmm. she's an idiot and, w and us idiots need to stick together. <laughs> it does have to add that in that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure she's not too. <laughs> so thank you for sharing that. That's all right. That's really lovely. So I've had friends going through tough times. I'm sure lots of listeners will as well. Mm. If someone hears this and right now, this week, there's someone going through a tough time that they want to support, what would be the one simple thing that they can start to do to make them feel supported? To just ask them how they're doing. Because that's it. Just a simple, a little call, a voice note, a text message, a DM or whatever, just to say, just thinking of you, how are you doing? You don't have to answer, but just letting you know I'm thinking of you. That is worth thousand million. I mean, just to know that somebody loves you and is thinking of you is, is all you can ask for, really. It's a simple act of kindness. And that's all, that's all you can ask for. Don't bombard them. I had one person in my life that messaged me like, three times a day, every day for about two months. And I, in the end, I had to get one of my friends to go, you can't do this anymore. You, the fact that you're showing that you care is brilliant, but back off because <laughs> it was, it was too much. So just like, just a little message every day or every other day, just the one, just I'm here, just to remind people that they're not alone. That's really helpful because so often you're worried about saying the wrong thing or take, I have definitely yeah. not texted people sometimes because I was worried about yeah. the right thing. And I, I had yeah. some experience where I had a newborn baby and my friend had just had a miscarriage and Ugh. I was so tempted to just not do anything. Yeah. And in the end, I went to see her with the newborn baby. I asked yeah. her to see if it was okay. Yeah, yeah. And I think she, well, she said she was really, really glad and she mentioned it so many mm. times afterwards. Mm. And, and yet I thought this is the most worst thing I can do. And yet it was positive. So. Basically, the main message is follow news advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would say, I don't know, if you, if there's people here that work for like websites where you can s sign up to subscribe for stuff that's to, you know, like, oh, new mothers, subscribe to this, and then you lose your child. 
if there's anyone here that develops web stuff that can develop an emergency button that will unsubscribe you from all of those things, because I still get like, oh, not mother care, cause that doesn't, stuff like that, like early learning center, there you go, bing, emails from that. And it's like, oh God, right, another reminder. So with all your magical businessy people out there, somebody's got to make a button that will just stop happening because that's horrendous. Thank you. There we go. I love that idea. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Where can people find out more about you? Where can they find out about your work? So you can go to louconran.com, L-O-U-C-O-N-R-A-N.com. There's me waffling on on my website or I'm on social media at louconran on most of the platforms. And then that's got my gig lists and some waffles that I've done that I've written up and put on, on my website. Thank you so much, Lou. I can't thank you enough for sharing your story. Oh, it's, honor. no, no, no. It's, it's my pleasure. Anything to help kind of spread the word and to make people realize that they're, they're not alone. There's people that you probably wouldn't have even thought of sitting next to you right now that have been through the same thing as you. So to start the conversation and talk about it. It's important. Very true. Thank you. Thank you. Honestly, I, I think it's hopefully going to be so, so change-making. Can you imagine if just every one of these, I'm sure you obviously have done this hundreds of times with your shows and everything, but mm-hmm. I, I just thinking if every person listening to this has three other people go through this and they're yeah. acting differently as a result, or they're influencing yeah. employer yeah. policy, like yeah. that is what we need to do. So I, I'm really grateful to you oh, for speaking. Oh, not at all. And it, honestly, anything to kind of change people's minds about how they deal with this because it is really important i'm you know very lucky i work in an industry where i'm surrounded by fools that it's their job to make people happy but i think everybody as long as you you know people need to talk about it and that's that's the most important thing but thank you for having me on that's really important and i appreciate it very much Thank you. And best of luck. I really want to come to, I'm not, I don't usually go to any gigs, but I definitely want to come to one of yours now. And guess what? Then I can actually have a night out and it will be like, oh, grown up time. <laughs> That's amazing. Sounds great. I'll have a look at your list. I'll have a look. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lou. Take care. Bye bye. Take care. Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to hear from Lou in a more lighthearted way, you can also check out her podcast, Spit or Swallow, which is on fine tasting and booth. And there's really fabulous people on there with her, such as Sarah McMillan, Jimmy Carr, Christopher Biggins, and many more. I can highly recommend it. If this podcast has been helpful to you in any way and you'd like practical communities to support you, then definitely consider joining our fellowship program. Applications are open now and you can find details about this and access to our free events on leadersplast.org.uk. Our fellowship will give you access to amazing inspirational role models who have experiences of bringing up kids whilst progressing their careers. You get help with practical challenges, for example, workloads, saying no, and you get time to develop your vision, make a plan for a career and family life that works for you. And most importantly, we look at the research on what causes career progression and then help you to apply that in your own context because as you know I'm super passionate about your seeing your career so we can change change the world from the inside. In our last cohort quite a few people applied for from podcast and it was really nice to get to know people 
or who used to be listeners, or still are listeners, better, better through that. And at, we've just evaluated our last cohort at the end. 53% said that either being promoted or got additional senior responsibility, even on the last day of the program, which we're really happy with. And if you think the world of podcasting should be a more generical place and you want to support this podcast, then please take a moment to share it with three to four friends or leave a five star review. Thank you very much and see you next week.